Hey everybody, Nitsan Mosri here, the traveling investor, and I have here Master Yoda right behind me. And we all know what Master Yoda likes to say, do or do not, there is no try. And in this radio show, we're going to teach you how to master your mind, body, and wallet, right? All those different areas because everything is holistic. It's Everything is together. And today I've got a great, great guest for us. Uh, his name is Charles Seaman. And Charles and I, we've known each other for a couple of years, and we've partnered up together. And uh, he's just been kicking it out of the ballpark when it comes to investing, team building, and you know, just building your name and getting out there. Uh, Charles serves as Senior Acquisition Manager and Asset Manager for Three Oaks Management LLC, in which he actively works to locate high-performing multifamily real estate opportunities throughout the Southeast region of the United States. He's responsible for performing all of the company's initial underwriting and analysis of these deals, which ultimately determines whether or not the deal will be a good fit for the company. He's also involved with contract negotiation, capital raising, and, and all of that aspect to make sure that the deals close, remaining involved, very involved, after closing to manage the asset so that they perform in a manner that provides investors with exceptional returns. He's been, uh, Charles has experienced his 14 years of working with a commercial real estate investor in New York City. Uh, during that time, he assisted the investor with acquiring deals, obtaining financial, uh, obtaining financing for them, and managing and leasing them after the deals were closed. While there, he also assisted the investor with the management of numerous other businesses that he owned, including a plumbing company and several bars and restaurants. And during his spare time, which I don't know how he had a lot of it after doing all that, uh, he also actively traded stocks from 2019 and 2014. So this guy, Charles, has been involved in a lot of different things, and he's got a lot of good background, financial, and you know, wherewithal and knowledge and um you know it's been amazing working with him so charles are you there let's bring him on board hey what's happening charles how are you good nichon thanks for that wonderful introduction absolutely my friend well you know what i i gotta tell you it's been it's been a real pleasure working with you and your team at three oaks um you know and and that's kind of what we're you know what we always talk about right it's about building the team Right, making sure that you're working with people that complement your skill sets that you like, that you can hang out with and have a good time and laugh and joke and, and just enjoy everything that we're doing, right? So that's what it's all about. Right, 100%. And I, I would say the exact same thing about you and your team at Cornerstone. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. So, Charles, before we go any further, why don't you give us a little bit more in-depth background of who you are, where you came from, and why you went into the multifamily real estate world absolutely so to go back way back when when i was 20 years old and still had a full head of hair with no receding hairline at that time <laughs> uh you know it, it wasn't really my intent at that time to go into multifamily and commercial real estate but more so what happened is i was working as a bank teller making eight dollars and 82 cents an hour and and at that point my mother became disabled april 2005 and i said to myself boy eight dollars and 82 cents an hour isn't going to pay the bills. I need to go out and find a real job. <laughs> That's right. Right. And, you know, a few months before that, uh, a gentleman who I was a friend of the family with had, had had met me actually at work at the bank and he'd given me his number and told me to give him a call and, and you know, see, see if he might have something for me. 
uh, at that point I was 19 and complacent and didn't really know what direction I was going in life. So I, I didn't do it. But as my mother became disabled, I reached out to him and I said, okay, let me give him a shot and see what he might have because, uh, you know, at this point, $8.82 isn't going to keep a roof over our heads and put food on the table and do all those wonderful things. So, you know, initially when I, when I first went into interview with him, it probably should have been a sign of the next 14 years to come. Uh, the first night that I went in for the interview, I wound up working 12 hours. <laughs> and, and I really didn't know what I was getting into, but I knew initially when I first started there, you know, it wasn't a lot of money, but I was making 600 bucks a week, which is like 31,000 a year. And I said, okay, in comparison to the 18,000 I was making before, 31 sounded pretty good. Right. And at that point, they said, I didn't care if I had to scrub the uh, the, tooth, the uh, toilet with my toothbrush, you know, would have done it. Because I said, okay, we got to do something to keep keep the lights on. So lo and behold, when I started there, I didn't realize all of the different roles that I would eventually fill. Uh, and, and a lot of them kind of evolved as I went. And I think it was because I had a good relationship with the, the guy I was working with. And while he was very tough, I was fortunate to work closely with him and to learn a lot. And it was probably the best intro to business and to commercial real estate that I could have got because, you know, as great as it is to take a course and do things like that, there's nothing like practical experience. And I was fortunate that I started there when I did because the company was still fairly small at that point. And he had several different businesses and he was running them himself. But, you know, I was in a good position because being that I, I didn't complain much and generally I always said yes, but sometimes it might be a problem. I have to probably learn to say no every now and then, but being, I would generally say yes, whenever he asked me something and, and I didn't complain over things. Most times I'd be there with him 11, 12, you know, one of the morning sometimes because we'd work crazy hours. And the good side to that was, was two things. One, it kind of taught me some toughness, which I, I didn't have at that point. And two, it, it also gave me a chance to work with a guy who was very successful and to learn a lot from him. You know, because a lot of times during the daytime, he would work on his, his, his plumbing company, and that's where the, the bulk of the effort would be spent. And then, you know, at nighttime, when it was just him and me, I, I'd get to work with him on the commercial real estate stuff and learn about that side of it. And he would teach me, okay, this is what you look for when you, when you read a contract. This is what you do when you do this. And I said, okay, so I was picking up all these little tidbits from a guy who was you know, very successfully investing and, and you know, had, had a great track record. So lo and behold, as my tenure there expanded, when I first started there, I only figured you know, I'll be there two or three years and then eventually I wanted to go out and do my own thing. But as time went on, I started doing a little bit better for myself financially. And then I, I probably got complacent again. And I said, you know, <laughs> I said, you know, maybe I can do this a little bit longer. And in my early to mid thirties, I said, you know, I'm not getting any younger. And the reality is, you know, I, I, I didn't intend to stay here forever when I first started. And I said, you know, let me try something different and shake things up. So lo and behold, fast forward to you know, 2017. So, so initially like 2014 and 15, I started dabbling into single family and wholesaling. And I determined two things. One is that uh, I don't necessarily have the skill set for those. Not that I couldn't develop it. But I was already used to working on commercial deals, so I didn't really want to develop it. And, and two, I didn't enjoy it as much. I, I, I kind of thought to myself, boy, I'm working on these big commercial deals at work, and I'm go, going out and looking at a, at a single family home myself, and I said, boy, this is defeating. So <laughs> in 2016, as I learned about syndication for the first time, I said, you know, this sounds interesting. I, I could use the skill set I already have. I could find a way to get in commercial real estate deals, and I could use other people's money. So I said, this is kind of hitting me the trifecta. So then at that point, I think 
and especially given the last year we've had with the pandemic, you know, I think anybody would look at it and say, all commercial real estate assets, multifamily is really the gem of that. And you get consistency. And, and that's what I always tell people. You can get very good returns, but more than great returns, you get consistency. Mm -hmm. and, and that's worth a lot. As many of us, I think, in the last year, anybody who had invested in an office building or a retail space or a hotel or anything like that would probably say, you know what, consistency looks pretty good at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Consistency yeah. is, is key. You know, hotels got hit hard because of this pandemic. Office space got hit hard. You know, I'm not sure how self-storage did. I think self-storage kind of maintained, maybe took a little dip. Right. Yeah. Because um, people can't pay for that extra storage. Right. Um, but but multifamily, you know, even though with the moratorium, with the eviction moratorium and and, you know, all that jazz multifamily didn't really take that hard of a hit. You know, we were, you know, we, we were looking at deals, right. And we're going, wow, you know, these cap rates, they're not, they're still going down. They're not right. going up. Right. Which, which for those that are listening, when a cap rate goes down, the capitalization rate, that means that the property is becoming more expensive actually. Mm -hmm. Right. So what we've seen was that properties were still selling at the same cap rates, if not getting more expensive, right. Yeah. And there's a lot more people out there wanting to buy multifamily, right. Um, you know, people always need a place to live in good economies and bad economies, right? So if right. you can underwrite a property conservatively enough, you can pretty much outride any downturn, right? Wouldn't you say that? I, I would agree with that fully. I think that's definitely the exact sentiment why so many of us like multifamily because there's, there's a lot of things that you can do because, you know, ultimately you still have to keep a roof over your head. Right. So you may not be able to afford the mortgage on the on the five bedroom, two bath house you had, but you're probably not going to move your family to the street corner. So you're going to go out and you're going to find an apartment and you know, that may be half the price of what your mortgage was. So all of a sudden it looks pretty good. And you know, you may not stay there forever, but at least it'll, it'll ride that wave. And it's great for an ownership standpoint because you have that stability. Right. Absolutely. So let me ask you, so, so for people that are listening that are just getting started in multifamily, okay. What would you recommend be, you know, the first three, four, five things that they do when they're getting involved in multifamily? And then maybe you can share what you did to, yep. get, to get started. So, Nishan, that's an excellent question. I'm going to give you four points. There you uh, go. So the first one, find a partner. Most syndication groups have anywhere between two to four people working in them. There's a reason for that. When you're first starting out and you're brand new, you don't have any momentum, so, so you, you probably won't have a lot of activity. But what will happen is as you build momentum, you're going to realize that it's, for most people, it's going to be way too much to handle with one person. What I recommend is having at least two people, yourself and one other at least, that, and one person working on the money-finding side and one person working on the deal-finding side. So that way, both sides kind of meet up in the middle as opposed to having one and not the other, which oftentimes happens. Uh, then the second thing I'd recommend, picking a target location. So one of the mistakes that we made starting out, uh, and I'll, I'll preface this and say that some people like learning the easy way. I like sticking my hand on the stove and getting burnt. I have to do it that way. It's just like even if somebody tells me not to, I, I have to say, okay, let me try it and see what happens. So, so when we first started, the first year we were working at it, you know, we looked at deals anywhere east of the Mississippi River. And for anybody with a map, uh, that's a lot of ground. So one month, you know, I was looking at a deal in Ohio. Another month, I was in Indiana, twice in Kentucky. One of my partners went down to Tennessee. 
And then after about a year, we got smart and said, okay, let, let's pick a target location. And a lot of people tell you that and the reason for it is twofold. One is because you're, you're spending time learning the market every time you go into a new market. So you're automatically at a disadvantage because there's extra time that you need to spend. And what happens is you're at a disadvantage to an experienced buyer in that market. So the good deal is going to go to them and not you. Mm -hmm. The second thing is you're also starting from scratch building relationships. So this is a relationship business. And if you want to get deals, you have to have relationships with brokers and sellers and, and mostly, mostly brokers are on our side. But if you don't have those relationships, a broker is not going to vouch for you and put their reputation on the line to say, okay, let me say, let's give this guy a shot when he doesn't know if you can really close. So it takes time and it takes consistency and it takes repetition. And if you see those things happening, eventually you'll see deals start coming your way. It's a lot easier to do that in one market than multiple at the beginning. Then the next thing I would tell you is also always be finding money. And a mistake that some people made, and, and we're guilty of this as well, is that they think, okay, let me go out and find the deal first and the money will come. So if I'm wholesaling a single family house, there's some truth to that. I could go find a deal today, get it under contract and meet somebody brand new that I didn't know tomorrow. And then I can very, very easily wholesale that deal to them. Absolutely. Right. But now in, in this space here, there's an, again, two more reasons. So this one here, we're dealing with much bigger deals and much bigger dollars. So it's not always as easy to say, okay, let me go out and find, you know, two, three, four, five million dollars that easily, unless you just have a, a killer network with people with boatloads of cash laying around. So <laughs> the thing is, one is that you always need to be looking for investors and two, is that it's going to take time for them to trust you. So what will happen is nobody's going to give you their money initially, especially if they see that you haven't done a deal. Uh, and, and, and also there's different SEC rules and regulations. So if you're doing a syndication, 89% of syndications are what, what they refer to as a 506B as in boy offering. And that means you can have accredited and non-accredited investors in there, but you must have pre-existing substantive relationships. So for anybody brand new, a pre-existing substantive relationship is not finding the deal today and then meeting the investor tomorrow. So always be cognizant of that so you're in compliance and, and don't get yourself in trouble. Those penalties right. are very expensive. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. And the last thing I would tell you, and, and, and this is where having a relationship with the, the partner and a friend like Nissan comes in handy, uh, sponsor relationships. And I would say of the four things, this is actually the most important. So the business we're in is a track record business. And what happens is when you're brand new to it, nobody has a track record. So what you, what you need to do is be able to find somebody that you can, for lack of a better term, hit your wagon to until you have a track record. And the key with that is, so a sponsor is just really somebody who signs on the loan, but if you do a good job building relationships, they can be much more than that to you. And you know, in the case of Nissan, Nissan's a friend and an advisor and, and many other things, and he's he's a very active partner, so that's a plus. So the thing is, and, and again, for everybody listening out there, don't do this without asking the sponsor because you'll lose their trust otherwise. But if you're working with them and you have a good relationship, ask them if it's okay if you use their name and their reputation when you speak to brokers or when you speak to investors, because it'll fast track your process a lot. If you're brand new and you go to the broker and say, hey, Mr. Broker, you know, my name is Charles, I'm brand new and I want to get my first deal. Can you send me something? You probably won't have the same success as if you say, hey, Mr. Broker, I'm working with Joe Smith. Joe's got 2,500 units. I'm his local boots on the ground in the market. What do you have for me? 
So, right. yep. So those would be the four points I would recommend just starting out. I'd say hit those points. Absolutely. Those are fantastic points. Now, so let's, let's talk about the market, right? I, I'm, I'm with you, right? When we first started out, right, we have, we have the same mentor, right? One of our same mentors. And he said, you know, go find an emerging market, go find a market out there, right? Pick two or three different markets, you know, and, and just kind of go with it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we did. Right. And, and yeah. we did the same exact thing. East of the Mississippi. We were in Texas. We were in Oklahoma. We were here. We were there. And, and, and what we found also with, with being market specific is that the lenders and your investors want to see you being the expert in that market, right? Now, if, you know, if you're someone like myself who lives in Florida and you're investing in Texas or you're investing in Carolinas, right, the lenders and your investors are going to ask you, well, what do you know about that market? What, what, how, how are you going to be there if you're in Florida? Having someone like you on the team, Charles, right? With you and, and Adam and all these guys in in the markets that we want to you know to buy in, then we tell the investors, like you said, we have boots on the ground over there. We have you know people that we trust and that we know and 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 that know the business, and they're there. When we were shotgunning it, as we say, right, just kind of going into the different markets, our investors kept asking us, "Well, how many properties do you own in that city?" Well, none. We're just, this is the first one we're going to buy. Well, how do you, you know, what have you done in that city? Well, we haven't done anything yet. Well, how do you know? And and that whole process um, becomes a lot more difficult in raising capital, in dealing with the lenders, because they want, the lender also wants to see, like you said, it's a track record business, right? They want to see you having a track record in that specific market. If you don't have anything, it's a lot harder for them to, to kind of gauge your experience in that specific city and state. So being focused in your market is going to help you raise capital. It's going to help you with your lenders. It's also going to help you find your sponsor, right? Because a sponsor wants someone who is familiar with the area so that you can, you know, you're in, you're in Charlotte, right? And I'm in Florida. So if I ask you, hey, Charles, you know, what's the difference between the north side of the street and the south side of the street? Yeah. Right? You can answer that question because you're there. You have that experience. You have that that personal experience that's there right now. Right. Yeah. Um, oh, that's uh, so, so that's awesome. And, and, and always finding money. You're always out there. Right. Um, I went to a, a networking event and they had a sign ABM always be marketing. Right. Yeah. We're, we're in the marketing business, but real estate is the product that we're marketing. Sure. Right? Ourselves. We're the ones that are, you know, we're, we're the product that we're marketing, right? 100%. Marketing and money management. I, I say, you know what? I tell people, similar to like when Ray Kroc said, you know, McDonald's is in the real estate business. We just sell hamburgers. I tell people, we're in the money management business. We just buy real estate. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We just, it, that's, that's exactly it. And, and, and we have to understand that because once we understand that, then then things become a lot clearer. Then we know how to behave. We know how to act, right? We, we, we know how to go about and build our team. Uh, I liked also what you said about partnering, right? 
a lot of people out there, they want to be the lone ranger, right? They think that, oh, you know what? If I'm the lone ranger, then I, you know, I, I'll, I'll do everything myself. I'll do everything the way, you know, the way I want and so forth. And, you know, my business partner, Laura, she has a great saying. She says, this business is like running 12 marathons at the same time. And you got to cross the finish line on all 12. And I don't know about you, but I can barely run from here to the door. Without getting winded. You're not pretty much the same at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so, so running 12 marathons, it's crazy. And and as we've done deals together, right? We've done what two or yeah, two deals so yeah, far, right? So far, coming. Right, and there's more coming. We we there's always moving parts. And what's awesome is that if if you're caught up in something else, right? Uh, you can fall back on me or fall back on your other partners, right? And and, and the same thing with me, right? Like right. we had our management call the other day and I wasn't able to be on it because I had a, a parent-teacher thing going on. So said to, you know, I told you, Charles, hey, Charles, do me a favor, you know, back me up on this. And you were there and and, and you can feed off of, of one another. Yes. Another another thing with, with partnerships, right? And, and tell me what you think about this is that you want to partner with people that complement your skill set. A hundred percent. So, so that's very important what you said. So I've always been a believer that you have to know what you're good at in life. And right. most of us are only good at so many things. You know, I, I always joke and say there's probably only three or four things I'm good at and most things I'm terrible at. But the things that I'm good at, I work on getting very good at. And eventually, you know, my goal is to eventually become the best at it. But I think it was Michael Jordan that said something to that effect. You know, don't spend time improving what you're not good at. And that's the mistake that most people make because the mistake is that you could you could focus your time there, but at best you're still going to be mediocre. So find those one or two things that you do better than everybody else, and then just get even better at them. And and find somebody else who does the same with the opposite. So if you're a numbers person, then you know what the underwriting is probably going to be your cup of tea. You probably that's won't right. be the person who's in front uh, posting on social media and trying to attract investors because that may not be the right fit. So you need somebody then who's very comfortable in that role and is comfortable putting themselves out there and posting content and going to in-person networking events with you know high-income earners and, and getting in front of them. So everybody has their own skill set and there's a place for that on the team. It's just figuring out where that place is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Skill set, right? And I agree with you 100%, right? What what were we always taught when we were kids, right? Oh, you've got your strong points and your weak points. Why don't you go work on your weak points and make them strong points? Well, if I do that, then my strong points will then become weak points. Right. <laughs> I'm always working on, on, on strengthening my weak points, but never really working on strengthening my strengths. Yep. And, and, and I heard the same thing, you know, many, many years ago, you know, uh, someone said, why don't you just focus on the top three things that you're awesome at and that you like to do and then get really awesome at those things. Forget everything else. Everything else, find somebody else to, to handle those things, right? To handle the, your, your weak points. Right. And, 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 you know, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. I'm not an Excel spreadsheet kind of guy. I know where, um, I know where my my weaknesses and my strengths lie. So when I was looking for a partner, when I was getting involved in multifamily and I realized, oh my God, you know, we got to create spreadsheets and performers and and do all these things. And holy cow, um, I, I, I don't know where 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 you know where an Excel sheet comes from, right? So I found a partner that knew how to blow these things out, and she's the micro while I'm the macro. 
Mm-hmm. And that's why we've been together. Um, we've got a great question. And, and by the way, listeners, if you do have a question, feel free to type it in. We'll get it. So we've got uh, James Verisco here. How long did it take for you from the time you started in the commercial real estate space to purchase your first asset? That's a great question, James. Thanks for asking. James, two years. So I, I started on a part-time basis uh, when I was still working my full-time job in June of 2017. And then we closed our first deal September of 2019. And, and explain to us what you did during those two years, right? A lot of, a lot of people think that, Hey, you know what, why don't I, you know, I could, I should be making millions within three months, right? If I close on a, on a deal and, you know, get the acquisition fees and all that. Right. So it took you two years, right? Explain to us a little bit about the process that you went through in those two years. Sure. So the biggest thing really more than anything was consistency. And that, that's what I tell people more than anything. I said, you know, you, you can learn things along the way, but you have to be taking action. And mm-hmm. if all we're doing is sitting there reading about things or just thinking, you know, that's a good start, but eventually you have to get off the thinking, stop the reading and get out there and start doing. And for me, you know, when I first started my full-time job, I was working anywhere between 60 and 90 hours a week. And, you know, I, I knew that, okay, I have to make some time for this. Otherwise it'll never happen. So I said, you know what, let me call about 10 to 15 hours a week. And where I worked, you know, even though I'm sure, I guess, you know, legally we could have, you know, we really didn't take lunch breaks. We weren't, um, we weren't raised in that mentality. It was like, you know what, just work from morning to night. And then, you know, eventually you go home. But, but I realized when I started doing this, I said, you know what, I have to make some time to get out. And I had to do this to make phone calls. So I said, you know what, you know, even if it's 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever I was able to get away for, I said, I have to be able to get out and I have to schedule these calls in advance. So that way people are expecting my call and I have an appointment and I'm not leaving it to chance because if I leave it to chance, then they may be in another appointment and I won't be able to reach them and then I miss them for that day. So I would call brokers, I would call attorneys, I would call other professionals, mostly brokers though, because that's really the bulk of the contact is I was trying to locate deals. And then when I would get home at night, you know, most nights I wouldn't be home before 11 o'clock. And I would usually start looking at deals at that time. Mm-hmm. Because the thing is, that type of stuff I knew I could do on my own. It didn't matter if I did it at 2 in the morning. But be cognizant of the fact that nobody wants to speak to you at 2 in the morning. So you have to try and at least get that stuff out of the way during normal business hours. Right. So I, I agree with you 100%. Consistency is key. Right. A lot of people will start in this business. They'll they'll start digging into a market. They'll start talking to brokers and, and you know, they won't build a team around them. Right. So they're working, like we said, like, you know, Lone Rangers. Right. It's just about me. And they're wondering why brokers aren't sending them a good deal, because mm-hmm. if you're starting out by yourself and you don't have the sponsor with you and you don't have people who, who that you can toss the, the light onto, Right. Um, brokers aren't going to send you the deals. That, right that are good, right? And you want the ones that they hold for the people that they know can close. And they're going to send you just the crappy stuff. And you're going to be underwriting and underwriting and underwriting. It's like, dude, what's going on here? Right. But you got to be consistent. You got to, and that's why you got to have a team in place because everybody's got to do their part. It's a big puzzle. You know, when I talk to my coaching clients, my mentor clients, I tell them, all right, listen, first thing we're going to do is we're going to create your lifestyle. What kind of lifestyle do you want to live? Right. What do you want to do? Do you want to go travel all the time? Do you want to have an office? What kind of lifestyle? Then let's see. Let's look at the picture of multifamily commercial real estate space. 
and let's break it up in, as a puzzle. What pieces do you have? What pieces do you need? And let's go start filling in those pieces so we can create that picture, and then you can go out and be successful. Yep. Right? Totally agree with that. If you're out there by yourself, it's it's super hard. Now, it's not impossible. You know, if you're the kind of person that has the cash flow, that has the, the net worth, that has, you know, experience a little bit in multifamily, yeah, you can go out and do it by yourself. But a lot of people that are starting out don't have that right now. Agreed. Right? So, all right. Let, so, so Charles, uh, James, I hope uh, Charles uh, answered your question, right? So it took him two years. It took me a year with my business partner to find our first uh, multifamily deal. Um, and it, that it was because we were, you know, I, I just moved to Florida. Uh, it was in 09. So the crash was going on, uh, single families were the hottest thing in, in, in South Florida. I was buying houses for $16,000 and, you know, turning around and flipping them for 25,000, 30,000. So the ROI was incredible. So I really wasn't focusing on multifamily until, you know, I was telling everybody what I was doing, getting involved in multifamily and how they could help and whatnot. And then deals started coming to me. Right. But we had to have that team built as well. Um, so let, let me ask you this. When you're looking at a property. OK. And this is all for, you know, people who are listening in. And, and again, if you guys want to ask a question, feel free to type it in and we'll, we'll answer your questions for you. Um, what do you look for in a property? Or, or let me ask let me ask you this. What's the first thing that you look for? Do you look for the right market? Do you look for the broker? Do you look for the neighborhood? Right? Do you have your 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 buying criteria first before you go into a market? Take us through your your process. So the first thing I would say, uh, of all the points that you mentioned, by far the most important is the area. Because that's the one thing you can't change. You can change the property, you can't change the area. So if you're buying in the wrong area, then you're screwed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yep. Uh, so, so make sure that you do good homework and good research on that. Make sure you have favorable metrics and that you're in an area that's growing and, and, and you know, very solid. How can, let me, let me stop you there. How can you yeah. find those, uh, the, um, those qualifications? Where would you look for? So there's a few different spots, but ultimately the biggest factor you're looking for is job creation because people tend to go where the jobs are. Now, that might be changing a little bit if we have people working remotely in the in the future as a permanent thing. But you know, historically, if you bring jobs to a market, people will follow. So that's mm -hmm. the general rule of thumb. So you can start with the Bureau of Labor Statistics, BLS.gov. They have different reports on there that people could access. And another one that, that we use is the Milken Institute uh, Best Performing Cities Report. So annually, they release a report, and it has a list of the best large and medium-sized cities in the U.S. for job creation. So those are reports that we want to focus on and things like that, because that lets us know what markets we should be investing in. So the second metric you would look at is growth in household formations, but really I would say jobs are more important than anything. Okay. All right. So job growth. Awesome. Thank yeah. you. So BLS.gov and the Milken Report for best performing cities. Right. All right. So, so you said the market, right? Now you've, you've pinpointed the market, right? Now what? Now do you just go and start talking to brokers? What are you looking for now? So so my general approach uh, is I go on LoopNet. And, and this was something we learned from our mentor and I, I thought it was a good technique. So I don't go on LoopNet with the intent, of, the intent of finding deals, which some people do. I go on there with the intent of finding brokers. Mm. And what I do is I would go on there and I would start just reaching out and you know, I, I contact brokers. 
And the first thing I look for is the ones that get back to me. Because I realize if I have to chase them at the beginning, I'm probably going to be chasing them all the way through, so I don't really want to deal with them anyway. So I go with the ones that actually respond to me. And then when they respond to my inquiry, what I would usually tell them is, you know, I really don't have any interest in the property I contacted you about because it's on LoopNet, so it probably doesn't have much potential. But you probably do have other properties that have potential, so I'd like to get to know you better. And maybe down the line, we can do something together. And then from there, I use that to set up an introductory phone call. And what I would also tell people is that, you know, this business can be done remotely. There's no question on that, but it certainly is easier if you are local to the market you're investing in. So one of the main reasons that I moved to Charlotte is that we focus in the Carolinas. We focus really in the Southeast, but the Carolinas primarily. So it made it that much easier to get in front of brokers. And you can do a lot by phone. You can do a lot by email. But in my opinion, there's still nothing that replaces getting together in person with somebody. And it could be getting together for lunch. It could be getting together for coffee. It could be go going to see them at a property tour. So I, I'm a big believer in taking advantage of every opportunity to get to connect with them in person. Mm -hmm. Generally with the brokers, I have really good relationships with. I try to take them out for lunch every two to three months. And I, I do that on a regular basis just so we get together and stay in front of them. And what I would also tell people is even if you're not competitive on a property, if it's something that you can get to easily, go tour it. Again, don't don't drive across the state, don't fly across the country just for that. But if it's something you can get to in an hour, maybe a two-hour drive, even, you know, take take the opportunity and get in front of them. People remember that, and that that goes a long way because you separate yourself from the competition and you separate yourself from all the people that aren't willing to do that. Absolutely, I I I say that same exact thing to my mentoring and coaching clients. You know, I said, look, if you're in Florida and you want to deal with in carolinas or in texas or wherever you want to go it's outside of florida it's outside of your backyard you know what it's worth it to either get in the car or get on a plane at least once right if you're not in that market and fly out there it shows the brokers that you're serious right to get on a plane that you're willing to go and you're out there and like you said you're separating yourself from everybody else right so that, that's key. Okay, so you made that relationship with the broker. You built the, you know, you got that going on. They know you now. They know who you are. They see that you've got a team. And you're telling them, listen, you know, this is where we want to buy. Then what? So then the next thing from that point is you, you, you have to set your acquisition criteria and you have to be clear on what type of deals you're looking for. So with us, you know, similar to many other groups, we look for B and C assets. Generally, we look for things that are 50 units and up. Uh, initially, when we first started, we were 100 units and up, but what we realized is we've had more trouble breaking into that space because the market is so competitive at this point. So we decided to downgrade it to 50, and that's actually worked out well because in the 50 to 100 unit space, we've kind of positioned ourselves as one of the more credible buyers. So that works out really good. And, and our goal is still to, to play in the 100 and 200 and 300 unit deals, but the reality is that might not happen until the market resets. You know, mm -hmm. right now, competition is heavy. You know, as Nissan said earlier in the show, both of us had thought that 2020 and the pandemic would have brought some type of reset, but it's only brought higher prices and lower cap rates. So the reason for that is because there's so many new buyers coming into the space. All of the, the big buyers, when I say big buyers, I don't mean buyers like us. I mean buyers like equity groups, buyers like institutionals. Uh, those guys who were buying office, they were buying retail, a lot of them have shifted and they've taken their money out of those investments going forward. And they've entered multifamily. Mm -hmm. So 
all of a sudden there's a brand new wave of competition. And there's not only a wave of competition who, who's just going to go in there and be more credible, but you have groups that'll put 250,000, 500,000, a million dollars hard money day one. Uh, for me personally, I'm, I'm not willing to do that. You know, I, I personally think it's crazy, but it's something that's become fairly standard in those deals. So when we made that change to go down to the 50 unit deals, it opened up a lot of opportunities because there's almost a different set of rules in that space. So what we do is we convey to brokers what our criteria is. We want deals of this asset class and this type of area, and then they, and they'll send us stuff. So what we do is we look at the deals and get back to them with feedback. And the most important thing to keep in mind for anybody listening is that this is a relationship business. So you have to get back to them. Even if they send you a deal that's a stinker, get back to them and let them know that you looked at it. You know, mm -hmm. let them know you went through it, may not be the right fit, but send us something more like this and this is what we want. Right. And they see consistency, eventually they'll, they'll give you a shot. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. Getting back to them, building your criteria uh, is is key because you don't want to be, it's like, it's like your market, right? You don't want to be all over the place. You want to yep. focus in on your ideal property and what you're looking for. And, and be as niche as possible. And you're absolutely right. You know, we were we we found the same problem or the same challenges, right? We're bidding on 150, 200, and we've had 240 unit properties in our portfolio, 220 units, 150, 70s. So we've had them. But that was in a time where, you know, it was an abundance of properties on the market because the market was crashing and everybody was just wanting to sell. Now everybody's wanting to buy and it's a seller's market. Sellers are asking ridiculous prices right now. Um, so what we found was that we're competing with all the gray stones, the rock pebbles, the river rocks, all those stones and pebbles and rock groups. And, and like you said, they're putting hard money, non-refundable earnest money deposit from day one. And you just can't compete with that. So you got to be able to pivot your, your business and your company and figure out what is your niche, right? What is it that you're looking at? So we found that 50 to 100, 120 units, there's not a lot of people looking and not a lot of people buying. And, you know, what do we hear all the time from everybody? Oh, the, the bigger, the better, right? Economies of scale. Economy, you know, that's great. But if it takes me two, three years to buy one property at 150, 200 units, why don't I just go out and buy four or five units a year? Yep. Right. Properties at 40, 50, 60, 70 units. And then I can build my portfolio and then I can have movement and action and yep. show my investors that, hey, we're doing deals. Right. So it's a way of looking at. It. So James got a, has another question for us. He goes, why are the listings on LoopNet and Crexy, for example, considered bad or hard deals? Haven't the brokers, main buyers pretty much passed on them, making them more attainable for the lesser experienced investors? So. James, to answer that question, the reason is because if it made it that far, uh, I think you kind of actually answered the question in your question. Mm -hmm. So being that the brokers and the main buyers have passed on them, there's a reason for that. And generally, it means it, it means generally one of two things. Either the deal's overpriced or there's a lot of hair on it, which hair can be opportunity depending on how much hair it is, but you have to be careful. So in many cases, it's simply that they're overpriced and the seller has an unrealistic expectation of what their property is worth and they don't really have a need to sell. So they'll hold out until they get the number that they want. Mm -hmm. Right. A lot of times also what I found is, um, and it's not a lot, but it happens sometimes, you know, where 
owners, instead of listing it with a broker and spending, you know, and having to, you know, have a broker listed on, on Crexy or whatnot, they'll go out and they'll list it themselves on LoopNet or Crexy, one of these properties, um, just so that they can see what kind of feedback they're going to get on it, right? Um, so, yeah, so remember, right, like Charles said, when, when you're giving it to a broker, a broker that's worth their weight in gold already has a substantial buyers list, right? And they're going to send it to their buyers. So if they don't, if their buyers don't take it, then they got to come up with other sources and, and whatnot. Now, it's funny because I have some brokers that email me stuff that what they do is they'll go on Crexy and LoopNet. They'll just find things and say, hey, look, this deal's you know, I, I found this deal. And then I look at it and I see, well, it's it's a loop net. It's not even yours. It's somebody else's. Why are you sending this to me? You know, it's funny you say that because I say that all the time. And I said, you know what? I, I recommend people deal with the listing brokers as soon as they can. Absolutely. Starting out, maybe they won't give you the time of day. Maybe the guy at Cushman and Wakefield, the CBA real say, why are you calling me? Uh, so you may not always be able to get that starting out. But the sooner you can get those guys, those are the ones you want because they're really the ones that control the market. Mm -hmm. And in any any major market in the U.S., there's only a handful of brokers. So, so if you're looking on the residential side, you could probably find a thousand, probably thousands of, of residential real estate brokers in most markets. Commercials a lot different. You probably have five to ten brokerages. You know the Cushman and Wakefields, the CBREs, the Brocadias, companies like that that have offices in every major market throughout the country, and they're really controlling those those commercial markets. So. If you can't get in with them initially, then I would develop relationships with boutique brokerages. But most times what the boutique brokerages do, similar to what Nissan said, is they're really just piggyback off the listing agents deals anyways. And what mm -hmm. happens is then on top of that, they, they're going to want to be paid a buyer's brokerage commission, which many times uh, on the commercial side, you don't see too many brokers willing to co-broke. So in residential, it might be common where all of a sudden, you know, if somebody's listing a house and, and a different uh, broker brings the buyer, then they split the commission. Right. Most commercial brokers are going to tell you straight out, nope, we don't do that. If you want to get <laughs> the buyer's broker, you pay him. That's right. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and like Charles said, you know, James, you go on, you go on LoopNet, you go on these other websites to find the brokers, right? Uh, you can also go on to, you know, their the, the business websites, the Cushman website, the CBRE, and just figure out who's the brokers in, in your area and, and, you know, and rock and roll with them. Um, so, all right. So, so we talked about the broker, we talked about the location, you know, we have a few minutes left. So let's talk about once you find the property, what are you looking for in a property? What are you underwriting it for? What are some of the, you know, red flags as well that you can automatically see that you know say you know what this is definitely not something we want to be involved in or wow this is amazing let's jump on it so in terms of red flags uh the biggest one i would find is in terms of financial information not matching up so maybe they, they presented you with different sets of financials along the way, there's inconsistencies. And I'm not talking about minor inconsistencies. I think a lot of sellers and a lot of managers will have that, but big glaring holes. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes that can be, you know, not having certain expenses accounted for, uh, not having things reported properly on the financial so it misrepresents the NOI of the property. And, and, and there's all different ways you can do things. So 
as you start seeing more and more sets of financials, you'll realize different ways that people try to hide things. <laughs> uh, so always be cognizant of that and just understand what it's going to take to run a deal in the market that you're looking at. So every market is unique. So the Charlotte market is different than New York, and that's different than Chicago, which is different than Los Angeles. So whatever market you're looking in, make sure that you have a property manager on your team, even a few property managers, and somebody that you can bounce ideas off from and say, listen, what do you think when you see this? Eventually, as you have expertise, you'll be able to do this yourself. But when you're starting out, you'll need to rely on somebody with more expertise than you. And you know, a property manager is usually a good source for that. So if all of a sudden the seller is running the property at $3,000 a unit for expenses, but your property manager is telling you, no, I think it really needs to be closer to 5,000 a unit, then you don't want to use 3,000 a unit in your underwriting. Because if you do that, you're going to be very disappointed when you get in there and realize, okay, now we're spending $5,000 a unit and we have a major problem here because we're not going to be able to make our distribution payments. Right. Yep, that's so, definitely a big red flag. That would be the big red flag. The second red flag, I would say, would be physical physical items that aren't disclosed. And generally, generally, most good brokers will disclose big ticket, you know, physical due diligence items. You know, if there's a, a glaring issue with the roofs that they're in need of replacement, they'll generally tell you that. Uh, but there are certain things that fall through the cracks, either because they didn't know or because they simply weren't disclosed. Mm -hmm. And then when you get in there and do your on-site due diligence inspection, you know, aside from just bringing yourself and your immediate team, you also want to bring your property manager and you want to bring any vendors you need. We, we normally bring a structural engineer. You know, I would also recommend an electrician or a plumber if you can get one. And that way you're checking all the major components and systems of the property. So if you find something that has a major deficiency and it wasn't something that was previously disclosed and budgeting to correct that deficiency is going to kill the return that you anticipated, then you really have two options. Either one, see if you can negotiate a better price, which right now being as a strong seller's market may not always work. Or two, just terminate the contract and move on to the next one. Mm-hmm. Right. How, you know, how many times has the seller hidden things, right? Many times. <laughs> Most sellers do because you always want to make it look as, as good as it can. You know, you, you want to get the highest price you can. And to do that, you'll, you'll present everything in the best possible light. Absolutely. And, and sometimes like one of the more common tricks that, that we've, we've seen and that you know, we've heard about also is that as you're getting ready to sell the property, maybe you've had an occupancy issue and all of a sudden, you know, the units miraculously becoming filled. So you know, physical occupancy goes up, but maybe they stopped adhering to the same screening processes that they normally follow. So now all of a sudden you have people moving in there, but you know, as long as they basically you know, could, could fog a mirror, they get in and they don't have to have any credit check, any background check, any, anything like that. So then you have a problem when you get in there and right. you may have to evict those tenants and that'll, that'll cost you the first couple of months as you, as you take over. Right, absolutely. And so when you're when you're doing your your due diligence on the property, uh, you want to look at that delinquency list, right? You yeah. want to see what's the cash flow, what's going on here, right? You want to check the leases, you want to check the applications, see what kind of screening that the the previous seller did before you close on the property. Because, like you said, you don't want to close on a property and then realize that thirty percent of your tenants you know, aren't paying now and, yeah. and you're gonna spend the next, like you said, the next 60 days evicting them. Yep, 100%, that's, that's a major thing. Mm -hmm.
And, and then in terms of the good side, so normally we look, um, we try to find deals that have a 16% average return or greater. And that's really our goal with at least a 7% cash on cash return. And, and really you want more than that, but that, that's the minimum. And most times we're underwriting pretty conservatively. So if we hit those numbers, if there's a pretty good chance we can probably outperform that and do better. But I, we'd always rather keep it conservative just to be safe. Mm -hmm. So, right. so like on some of our deals, truthfully, we probably show lower returns than other syndicators do. And I feel good about that because I feel good knowing that, you know what, we're putting out something I know we can hit and we're putting out something that we can probably outperform. Uh, I, I always like to keep a pulse on the market. And one of the ways I do that is by looking at what other syndicators do and looking at their deals. And, you know, for two reasons. One, I like to see their presentations and just how they package things. And two, I like to see what type of deals they're looking at and how they're underwriting them. Mm -hmm. There are some groups I look at and say, you know what? Okay, they could probably hit those numbers. And then there's other ones I look at and say, there's no way they're hitting those numbers. Right. <laughs> and, and it's like, you know, it, it looks better on paper because they'll put a 21% return. But I said, you know what? They're not even going to come close to that. So, so we'll put a 16% return, but I said, okay, you know what? We might be able to hit 19 or 20. So I'm okay with that. Right. It's always better to underpromise and overdeliver. And it doesn't matter if you're, you know, if you're promising a 35% return and you're giving a 33% return, mm -hmm. you promise 35. Yep. That, that happened to me with one of a, with a fix and flip I was doing. I got a friend of mine involved and we, we invested money and I told him, I said, listen, you know, we're probably going to be out of this deal within four months, four or five months. And we're probably going to make around a 35% return on our investment, um, you know, in four or five months. And you, you do that twice a year. That's 120%. You know, that's a, that's a 60 something, 70% return on your money, yep. which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. We did the deal. We, I gave him his money back with between three and four months rather than four or five or six months, but it wasn't a 35%. It was like a 32% return. What was the first thing he said? Where's the other 3%? <laughs> yeah. Didn't you say 35%? I was like, dude, I said, really? I said, I, I, I gave you your money back in three months. I said, it's not even your money. You took out a line of credit from the bank. You paid them 4%. I made you 33%. It's free money. Your, yep. your, your return is actually infinite. He goes, yeah, but didn't you say 35%? I said, my God. I said, look, I gave you 33 32% in three months. That, yep. that, that's an annual return of 120%. Right. <laughs> Why don't you say 35? I said, oh, wow. So, you know, you learn, right? Yeah. Next time I told him, I said, well, I'm going to give you a 20% return and it's going to take us six months. Yep. Right? And that way you set the bar lower and it's easier and then all of a sudden it's it's easy to jump over. Because then you look like you look like like a hero. You look like Superman. Yep. Right? Like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, the way I think of it is most large companies in America do that. That's what Apple does. That's what Google does. You know, they'll set earnings targets that – like, okay, they, they know they can blow past that. So then when they deliver their earnings reports, like, okay, well, you know what? We, we, we exceeded it. We went past this. And I said, okay, well, that's what all these large companies do. So I guess well, why should we be any different? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right, man. So we got a few minutes left. Why don't you share with people how they can get in touch with you? Because I know you also um, have an underwriting class where you yes. teach people. Absolutely. How to underwrite, what to look for, how to work on this on the spreadsheets, all that good jazz, which is awesome. So I want you to share with our listeners how they can uh, hmm. reach out to you. Absolutely. So the, for anybody that wants to reach out, the underwriting sessions are every Saturday, 4 p.m. Eastern on Zoom. 
you can either text me 347-306-3278 or reach out to me by email at charles at three, the number three, oaks, O-A-K-S, M-G-M-T.com and tell me that you heard me on the Traveling Investor Show with Nitsan and that you would like to join the underwriting sessions. Awesome, man. Thanks so much for being here. You know, having someone like Charles on your team takes a lot of load, a lot of a lot of um, stress off of your shoulders um, because you now have someone that actually takes and carries their load and does it well, right? You don't always have to run after people. So when you're partnering with someone, make sure that they share the same values, the same work ethics and the same goals as you. And, and you can really align yourselves because that's when the magic happens. Right. Start closing deals. When things start working, the projects are working well, property managers there, you can bounce ideas off of. And it just, it, it's awesome. Every time I go up to Charlotte, we go, we hang out, we have lunch, we do, we, you know, and we talk multiple times on a day, you know, daily basis, which is fantastic, right? Yeah. Become your friends then. And, and it's just a great way of expanding your network and, and doing deals and enjoying what you're doing. Right. Right. How many of us have gone into a business setting where, you know, we got a job and now we're in an office, but the three people sitting next to us are assholes and we got to work with them now. <laughs> Probably most law firms in America. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, well, thank you, James, for uh, for uh, uh, sending in your questions. And if anybody else has any questions offsite, feel free to reach out to Charles or send us uh, your questions uh, to the traveling investor. Um, and uh, Charles, thanks again for being here. I know you're super busy looking at more deals for us to close and to, and to get on our books, but I want to thank you for being here. Thanks for sharing all your knowledge with everyone. Uh, it's been fantastic. And uh, just for uh, listeners out there, uh, I'm doing a buy one, get one, a BOGO uh, for my group coaching. It's $36 a month. There's four classes. I'm extending that so that $36, you can get it for two months. So it's buy one, get the next month free. So that's eight group coaching classes where you get to speak to me in a group setting. You get to ask questions and we can get to know one another and, and answer all your questions. So anybody that's interested, feel free, reach out to us. We'll, uh, we'll set you up on that and, uh, and we'll get you going. Um, Charles, thanks again. One yeah. thing I would say just to add to that, when, when you go to Nissan, you actually get Nissan. So there are some programs where you go to, you wind up paying, and then you don't get the person that, that you think you're getting. So right. when you wind up doing coaching with Nissan, you're actually dealing with Nissan. Yep. Thanks. I appreciate that. And, and that's true. That's, that's, that's kind of one thing that I definitely separate myself with other people is that you're talking to me and you're getting it. Um, and, and I just want to give a shout out to one of my uh, coaching clients, Ricardo. He just partnered up with people and they closed on a 236 unit property in Jacksonville, North Carolina. Congratulations. Um, yeah. They, they raised $5.2 million, which was awesome. And uh, he's super excited and I'm really happy for him. And he started with me a year ago and he was going and, and this is his first deal and he's rocking and rolling. So that's awesome. Yeah. Wendy, can you put that back up there for me? So here we go. So our next live stream is March 18th. Well, it's not with Charles. We have Charles now. Um, and my BOGO group coaching is happening now. So that's buy one, get one, right? $36 gets you two months. And then I also got my $7 perfect money raising system. 
talks about how to build your brand, how to go out and talk to people, how to raise money without ever asking for it, right? Because what we do is we go out there and we talk to people and we build a network, but we never ask for money. We present opportunities and I'm gonna show you, take you step by step from building your brand, uh, becoming uh, the expert uh, and, and creating your presentation so that you can go out and raise money like Charles does, like my coaching client Ricardo does, like my other client uh, Caesar. They went out and they did it. They got other people to fund their deals. So for $7, you're going to get that money raising system and it's yours just for $7, right? And I'm giving people a money back guarantee as well. If you don't like it, email me. I'll throw you your $7 back because it's not about the $7. It's about you achieving success and being able to live life on your terms. So Charles, thanks again for being here. I'm Nitsan Moser, the Traveling Investor. We'll see you guys next week. Same time, same station. Have a wonderful weekend. Be well, everybody. And I'll see you at the top.